Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us today, that our minds will be enlightened, that we will come to know your, the truth about your kingdom and how we can cooperate with you to, to spread the light of the gospel to this world, that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in the study guide, Sanctuary, and the title this week is The Atonement. And I thought, well, maybe before we start the Day of Atonement study, maybe we ought to define what we mean by atonement. What we mean by atonement. At one minute. At one minute. I, I like where you guys are going with that. I, I actually looked up in the dictionary, the definition, and it says in the dictionary, uh, basically two modern definitions and one obsolete defini- de- definition. The modern is the reconciliation of God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, or reparation for an offense or injury, satisfaction. Now, do you think those two have been merged in Christian thought, where when we think about the reconciliation of God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we actually think reparation for an offense or satisfaction. The obsolete definition is reconciliation. And uh, this is uh, from the God-shaped brain, page 177. Atonement is one of those words whose meaning has changed. I remember when I used to believe God's law was an imposed law, it affected how I understood God's word. Like many, I thought atonement meant satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or injury to make amends. I drew all kinds of wrong conclusions like Jesus had to die to appease the Father's wrath toward my sin. As long as I believed that distortion, love didn't flow in my heart. It was the truth that set me free and opened my heart to love. I discovered in the King James Bible was written into English in 1611, atonement had a different meaning than what we typically ascribe today. In the 16th and 17th century, the word one, O-N-E, was not only a noun, but also a verb. If two people were at odds, and I wanted to bring them back into friendship, I might say, I'm going to one them. I'm going to bring them back into unity, into oneness. This concept quickly became known as at one, or atone. We pronounce it atone rather than at one, because that is the old English pronunciation. When you are all by yourself, you are not all one, but alone. The process of uniting warring factions is therefore called atonement. So, when we think of the Day of Atonement, do we think the Day of Reconciliation, the Day of Unity, the Day of Oneness, the Day when we are all one with God again, or do we think something else? When we think of the Day of Atonement. Cleansing. Cleansing. Other things. In Judaism, if you seek uh, forgiveness you, for atonement for one you wrong, and uh, whether they accept that or not, it's, it's, it alleviates your end of the bargain. I hear you. Okay. Restoration. So as we go down, maybe we should decide which path we want to go down as we explore this Day of Atonement. Do we want to go down the path of imposed law? with imposed punishments, or design protocols for life, natural law, the way God built things, uh, to operate. Imposed law trails will lead us down to the conclusions of punishment, appeasement, uh, legal conclusions, but natural law understandings will lead us to actual reconciliation, healing, and restoration. Let's look at that. Sunday, first paragraph says, says, throughout the year, all kinds of sins and ritual impurities were transferred to the sanctuary. With the Day of Atonement comes the time for their removal. Can anyone show me a Bible text 
anywhere in Scripture where the blood of the sacrificial animal defiled, contaminated, corrupted, or any way made unclean anything it touched. One text anywhere. It's not in Scripture, I can tell you. I've done exhaustive research. I put this challenge out there five years ago. Uh, on the web, we've never had one person recently emailed me because I said this again a few weeks back and said, hey, there's a text, and I can't remember the reference, but there's a text that says, the blood of the sacrificial animal hits the hem of a garment, the garment becomes holy. If that garment with the blood on it then touches something, what it touches becomes defiled. They go, see, the blood defiles. No, 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 no. The blood made this garment holy. But now if the garment touches something, it defiles. And what it's basically saying is, you and I, if we partake of Jesus Christ, where he says, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part with me. If we partake of Christ, we can be made holy. But once we're holy, we can't go and make someone else holy. They have to partake of Christ directly. That's all that's saying. So no, the blood doesn't contaminate anything. At least in Scripture, you can't find a text that says that. And if you find one, let me know. But this idea that the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminates the sanctuary is the result of starting down the wrong trail. Going down legal models. The law is broken. We must keep the, we must keep the record of sin in order to have a just punishments meted out. Um, then we find ourselves with this idea that the blood is contaminating with records of sin that must be then one day investigated and then a list of punishments must, must be meted out for those who have, haven't had the, the, the record removed. But can anybody show me a Bible text that teaches this? It's not there. But this, this idea of what's happening in the Day of Atonement is totally consistent with the healing model. The blood, as Jesus said, is a metaphor. And the Bible says metaphor for his life, metaphor for the truth. It cleanses our minds from lies. It cleanses our characters. It transforms us. It rejuvenates. It heals. Um, and it puts us back in harmony with the Father. So during the daily sin offer, daily sacrifices, the sin offering of the sinner was confessed on the head of the animal. The sinner, not the priest, cut the throat. The daily priest, not the high priest, took the blood in vessels to the various points through the sanctuary. And this is symbolic of what? What does that symbolize? What are the priests doing? What does it symbolize? Yes. One of our listeners says, according to E.W., the sin was transferred in figure and in fact to the sanctuary. I still have trouble with this. Any help? Yeah. I, I, th- does our listener have a Bible text? That's the question. If you're listening, do you have a Bible text? Because uh, Ellen White said that all of her writings are less to the Bible and should be conformed to the Bible, understood through the Bible. And if we can't find it in the Bible, then we are maybe are misunderstanding her writings. So whatever you think you read in her writings, we have to conform it to Scripture. And that's and I can give you many texts that say that. So she, she also said there is much about the sanctuary and the services that we don't yet know. And, yes. And written 130 years ago. Exactly. And there's much yet to learn. Exactly. So um, so it symbolizes the sharing of the gospel, yes. They want to know how you understand that quotation from Ellen White. If you look at the quotation, it's, it's Great Controversy, page 417, paragraph 4, I think. Um, and in the paragraph, it says that the blood is representing the life of the sinner. Isn't that what it says? No. 417, yes, it is. 
this is page 417, paragraph 4. Without the shedding of blood, the po- says the apostle, there is no remission of sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The broken law of God demanded the life of the transgressor. The blood representing the forfeited life of the sinner whose guilt the victim bore. Okay? Notice the issue. The blood of the sacrificial animal in this particular context is being alleged to no longer represent the blood of Christ, but the blood of the, the, uh, but the, blood of the sinner. In the earlier part of the paragraph, it says, when the sinner confessed his sins on the head of the innocent victim, the sin was transferred in figure to the innocent victim. So, who's the innocent victim? Jesus. So in the context of the paragraph, the innocent animal is described as representing Christ, but in a moment later, now suddenly the blood of that innocent victim is representing the sinner. I think there's a breakdown there, personally. I think there's an error in progression in thought. Does that mean that, you know, does that mean that we shouldn't have confidence in her wisdom and insight? No, it means that we should take her wisdoms and insights and go to the scripture and compare them with scripture and, and stick with the scriptures. Remember, Peter was an apostle, an apostle who had to be corrected by Paul because he was wrong. And how many of us, if Peter came from, you know, the apostle Peter came and told us that we really shouldn't associate with certain members of the, you know, the, of the uncircumcised group, well, he's the apostle. I, you know, he, he, he spent time with the Lord three and a half years. He was trained at his feet. He must know. I shouldn't think. I shouldn't ask questions. Let's just do what the, what the apostle said. Apostles are human. Prophets are human. And, and we have a responsibility. And truth is unfolding. It's progressive. Let's see if we can't go through the rest of the lesson because I think there's some elements that will really add to this insight that I think will be compelling to us in the direction we're going. Yes? I want to go back to the blood. The Bible says that blood stands for life or the life is in the blood. Yes. The sinner, usually we say, is guilty of death. But what you just read is that the sinner has forfeited the gift of life. Life is a gift from God. So when we sin, turn away from God, then we forfeit the gift of life, which is a little bit different than to say that the sinner is, is condemned to death. Yeah, I have, no, I have no problem with that idea, but the idea was that the, the blood of the sacrificial animal now being carried through the sanctuary is not representative of the blood of Christ. That's what is being suggested in that. And I have a problem with that. Is, any, is it just me? Or does anybody else have a problem with that? I, I, you know, I, I like the idea that the sacrificial animal, Jesus, represents us. Excuse me, represents our Savior, not us. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that the blood is the blood. And Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, John 6, you have no part with me. Was he talking about us basically taking our own characters back into ourselves because the blood represents the life of the forfeited sinner? Does it make sense to me? That's because he represents life, Christ. Right, but that's not what the paragraph said. The paragraph that was in question was asking the question about this idea that the blood contaminates. And the reason it has the idea that the blood contaminates is because the blood is attributed to the sinner, not to Christ. I think it's reasonable to conclude that um, Ellen White may have struggled with um, the distinction between natural and imposed law as well. I mean, the great controversy is full of some very dark, um, legalistic language, and in that quote that was read, said that you know the God's law demanded the life of the sinner, and rightly understood, it's absolutely correct. But yeah. rightly understood, it takes you down a completely different path. Yeah, I agree. 
Let's go back to, to the lesson. Um, ministry, um, the, 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 the daily priest carrying the blood through the, through the sanctuary is symbolic of, remember the daily priest in our white robe, symbolic of those who are saved. Um, Paul was a vessel. The blood represents the gospel or the, or the saving message that we minister and take to the world. The Day of Atonement, though, is a time in the annual cycle when unity is achieved. The sacrificial goat does not have sin confessed on the head of the sacrificial goat. But yet, it's offered as a sin offering. So on the daily, when you came and you were a sinner, and you came, you would confess your sins on the head of the animal. You, the sinner, would cut the, 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 um, the throat of the animal. The daily priest would take the blood and minister it at various points. On the Day of Atonement, the goat that was sacrificed was sacrificed by the high priest. No sin was confessed on the head of the goat. Yeah. Yet it's called a sin offering, but no sin's confessed on it. What do you think that means? No, no sin confessed, yet a sin offering. And sacrificed by the high priest, not the sinner. Well, the Day of Atonement is about the work of the high priest. In cleansing, in restoring, in reuniting, in, in helping people come back to the, to the full oneness of heart, mind, character uh, with God. Um, consider the various activities. Let's go through these. We can confess our sins, represented by, confess our sins to Christ, represented by confessing on the head of the animal. We can accept Jesus and all he has done for us, represented by the blood being applied to the brazen altar, that represents conversion, represented by the blood being applied to the golden altar, representing sanctification, representing eating of the, of the sacrificial animal, representing the, the continual internalization of Christ into the heart. We can witness the truth and share the gospel. The work of the daily priests and the vessels which carried the blood to the various places was representing that. We can study the word of God, represented by washing in the laver. We can fellowship together with other believers and study God's word, represented by every Sabbath, the priests in their white robes getting together in the holy place to partake of the showbread. Um, We can experience the work of the Holy Spirit within, represented by the fire on the two altars. We can be united with Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a light unto the world, represented by the lampstand. But only Jesus can cleanse, can restore can make us holy, can reunite us, can make us at one with God. Thus, only the high priest burned incense on the altar, the golden altar, representing the character of Christ being reproduced in the heart of those who have been renewed in gold. Gold tried in the fire of the golden altar, our hearts renewed. Only the high priest trimmed the wicks of the lamp, cutting away the dredges and character defects so that we can burn more brightly for him. Only the high priest Christ works in our heart. And only the high priest was in the temple officiating and working on the Day of Atonement, representing Christ's work of cleansing the heart from sin, restoring the character of his people into perfection, preparing his bride for his return. Only Christ can do that kind of cleansing. So during the time the high priest is doing his work, the people were fasting and praying, representing their devotion to cooperate with him to experience the cleansing. Leviticus 16 documents this whole procedure and how the day progressed. It starts with the high priest Aaron on the Day of Atonement, first taking a bull that he, that he, he kills, and he takes the blood of the bull for the sins of himself and his family into the most holy place, 
Uh, and he also has a censer with him, two handfuls of incense, and he pours the handfuls of incense on the censer to make a lot of smoke when he goes in to, to take the blood of the bull, which is a sin offering for him and his family, into the most holy place. And it says that the, uh, the incense was to be burned while he sprinkles the blood so that it will hide him from the mercy seat. What do you think that means? Interpret the symbols. What do the symbols mean? Mercy seat represents what? The lid. The mercy seat's the lid. The lid of the ark represents what? Christ. The Father. Christ. It was solid gold. It was, and in the, in the sanctuary service system, it had no measurement. In other, in other words, everything had measurement. But the lid was not specified on its thickness, on, the, on its, how thick it was to be. Meaning it's boundless. It has no measure. It has no limit. It's limitless. Christ's perfection, his love, Christ is limitless in his capacity to save. So the lid represents Christ. Okay? The smoke of the incense. What does it represent? The high priest is now two handfuls of, of incense that's, that can only be used. It's burning. It's creating the smoke kind of in between the high priest and the, and the, what's the incense represent? Prayers, isn't it? Christ-like character. Christ-like character. Ascending in praise, prayers, adoration, appreciation, all those things. But it's Christ-like character. That's why it's the incense. People can pray with an unchrist-like character, can't they? Christ-righteousness? Yes. So what do you think it's symbolic of then? Without the renewal of Christ-like character, we can't see God. Or another way to say it is, it is only through Christ-like character we're able to be reunited back to oneness with God. That's the mechanism, the means whereby we can come back into his presence through Christ-like character which is represented by the incense. So that's Aaron going in with the blood of the bull for him as the human being, Aaron, who's going to work and officiate in the high priest. After the bull for Aaron and his family, then Aaron goes out, has two goats that are as, as, li- as alike as they can possibly get. These two goats look as identical as they can possibly look. And ca- lots are cast over them. One is chosen as the Lord goat. One is the scapegoat. What do you think it means that they... they that, that w- why didn't they have one goat perfect and, bl- and without blemish is all sacrificed, and one goat defective and, 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 and festering with lesions and, 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 and sick and, and, and gnarly. Uh, you know, why, why, because if one's going to represent Satan, right? Why, why did they do it that way? I mean, he's, he's, he's fungating with sin. Why, why, why do they have these two that look, look identical? Why? Because he was created perfect. Mm-hmm. He was created perfect, that's true, but are we dealing in the Day of Atonement and in, in, in if you understand the context of the Day of Atonement, what is being taught there is it happening in the landscape of, of, of universal history when this being represented by the scapegoat is still perfect. Then why is he? So it's not representing the origin of sin in the great controversy in heaven on the Day of Atonement. That's not where we are. We're representing the conclusion, coming, closing chapters of the Day of Atonement. So why is he represented in this perfect-looking approximation? Because they're both claiming to represent the same thing. Oh, okay. Because Satan is a counterfeiter. And if you're a counterfeiter, do you make, do you try to, if you're going to counterfeit money, and you really want people to to use your money and accept it as real money, are you going to use Monopoly money? No. No. You want to get it as close to the real as you possibly can. That's what you want to do. 
So these two goats look identical on the surface, on the exterior, because Satan impersonates Christ. He tries to approximate and misrepresent so that we can't tell the difference between the true and the error. Let me tell you, this has happened to Christianity. It's happened in the Old Testament. Remember Baal worship. Baal was the son of El. El, Ohim, El Shaddai, son of El. He was the, he was the God of, who brought the, uh, the weather, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, who, who refreshed the earth, who brought life to the earth. He was the God who fought against Moat, the God of death. He fought against Leviathan, the great serpent. And in his battle with, with Moat, the God of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. Now, what is the problem if we worship a God who is the son of El? who fights the great serpent, who is the creator and brings life to the earth, who fights against death, and in his battle for death on our behalf, he dies and rises again to bring us life. What's wrong with that God? He demanded appeasement. That's it. This is this deception. It looks so close, except Baal demanded appeasement with payments that the worshiper had to bring. And so Baal became, you're going to find this fascinating, he became um, Zeus, god of thunder, to the Greeks. He became Thor to the Norse people. He became Jupiter to the Romans, and he became Jesus Christ to the Christians when Constantine converted. And now we have Jesus, the son of El, who died and fought the great serpent, who fought death, who rose again to bring us life, but demands payment and appeasement. And he was the payment and appeasement to appease his father. And that's why Malachi says in the, that at the end of time, we need Elijah to come to draw the hearts of the, of the fathers back to the sons, to separate this distortion at the Day of Atonement, there's these two beings at the end of time that look almost like these, these two theologies that look almost alike, but they're not alike. Yes, way in the back. One of our listeners said Hebrews 9, 22, and 23 makes it sound like things are in heaven are purified. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, it says in, um, in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, um, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Heavenly things need a reconciliation. Of course, where did sin begin? In heaven. Yes. Go ahead, Russell. What's the symbolism behind the casting of the lots? It seems a bit arbitrary. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm not exactly clear on the, the lot casting because it seems random, other than in Jewish times the lot casting were overseen supposedly by God himself so and so maybe the idea in the casting of the lots is you can't tell but if you trust me I'll reveal it to you yeah sort of like they cast the lots for what was Aiken yep and, and the lot casting was supposedly not random God was in control of how it would fall because we can't see the secret intents of the heart so it was think it was an intent basically he would reveal truth if we trust him that's what I think it's trying to say I saw another hand okay um, let's let's go on with this. Um, and, and on November 9, if you haven't marked down November 9, guys, didn't make that announcement. November 9, Saturday afternoon, 2 to 6 p.m., we're doing God in Your Brain seminar at the Hamilton Community Church on Shallowford. Three lectures where we will expose in great detail the difference between the two systems and why, in our, in our view, why the, the delay, why Christ hasn't come, because the gospel has not gone to the world. This other system looks so close to the gospel is really what's gone to the world. So 2 to 6 p.m., and if you can't be in town, we will webcast that live as well. Go to our website um, for details about that. So Aaron sacrifices the Lord's goat, takes the blood back in as the high priest, but without the censer. So he goes in now, when, the, when he went to bull for himself, he took the censer. 
with the, the, but now he goes as the high priest. As the high priest with the blood of the, of the goat, no censer, no incense is being burned, which represents, and he goes in and he sprinkles the blood seven times before the uh, mercy seat on the mercy seat, and then comes out and, and uh, applies it to the various altars and so forth. What's being represented here? What's the blood represent? Well, one of the errors that has been made, and this is going to tie into maybe the question earlier about the sanctuary being contaminated, one of the errors that's been made is an incomplete understanding of the ark and only taking part of what's actually represented there. Some of the historic views focus on the law beneath the mercy seat and exclude the other elements that are also underneath the mercy seat. They only focus on the law. They don't focus on the manna. They don't focus on the rod that budded. Just one of three. So you're getting one-third of the picture in the traditional views. And they also further claim that the law in the ark is the broken law that is covered by the mercy seat and must be paid for by the blood that's being sprinkled on. Let me ask you this, guys. Get ready for this. How many sets of commandments were given to Moses? What happened to the first set? They were broken. Which set went into the ark? The unbroken went into the ark. If God wanted to represent that this was the broken law, why didn't he have the pieces of the broken law put in the ark? It's not the broken law that went in the ark because it's not representative of a penal legal system. This is the counterfeit. It's not payment being made. It's not appeasement. This is a lie. What's being represented is the progression. First thing that went in the ark was manna. Manna symbolic of? Christ. I'm the bread of life. We've come down from heaven. Okay, We partake first thing in the process of a sinner to be restored to righteousness and oneness with God is they have to come back and partake of Christ, the truth that Christ revealed. And when we partake of Christ, we see the truth. We understand who he is in character. We are The lies are expelled and we're one to trust. We trust him. We're not afraid. We don't keep our heart closed. We open our heart because we realize how awesome he is. We invite him in. And then the next thing that went in the ark was the unbroken law. I will write my law on your heart and mind. And then the third thing that went in the, went in the ark was Aaron's rod that budded. We are dead in our trespass and sin. When we partake of Christ, or one to trust, open the heart. He writes the law on our heart. We are brought to newness of life. We're reborn. We're recreated. And we bring about peaceable fruits of righteousness and our life sprouts and blossoms Christ-likeness. This is the symbolism of the whole ark. This other thing is a distortion. And thus the blood is not paying a broken law. It's sealing those who have partaken Christ, had the law written in their heart, and are bringing about peaceable fruits of righteousness. This is being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be moved. It is the sealing process, the final work, before we're ready to see him face to face. This is what I think is being represented here. It's preparing of the church to meet Christ when he comes. So they, those who take the position of the broken law, I think it make two errors. They error in saying that the law that was not broken is broken, and they only take one out of three elements that are actually in the ark. Back, it's interesting, you go to Romans 5.11, it says, And not only so, but also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And it's interesting, if you go back to even the definition 
of the dictionary element was using there, it means agreement, concord, reconciliation after enmity or controversy. So everything's answered. So now that we receive the reconciliation, the oneness, the unity, and Christ prayed in John 17, I pray that you will be one, as the Father and I are one. We all back together in unity. And one other brief point. Sometimes reconciliation between two people are really strange. Other time you have someone's new friend who's bringing everyone's on your side. It doesn't mean that both parties are wrong. In this case, you know, God the Father, God the Son are totally unified. And obviously Jesus is telling us, hey, the Father loves you as much as I do. He's not having to convince the Father, please love what yeah. I died for. So it's, you know, if we see it vertically instead of horizontally, we know God's perfect, Jesus is perfect, we're the imperfect ones, and they both love us, they're crazy about us. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. God was in the Son, reconciling the world into himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, it's right. Christ was God's medium, avenue, conduit, agent to achieve God's goal of healing and restoring us back in unity with him. It was the mechanism God needed to use, if you want to use it, those, those words, to achieve God's agenda. God's agenda was for our salvation. It wasn't Jesus' agenda to do something to get God to be willing to accept us, which is often the way it's represented. That's Baal worship. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, the, so, the spring, uh, so the mercy seat, um, the lid covers uh, the ark because we are, when we're united to Christ, his character overwrites our defective character. We get a new heart and right spirit. We're recreated in the inner man. We get the mind of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have the circumstances of the heart by the spirit. The lid covers that ark that we've partaken of because we are overwritten with the character of Christ and we're renewed within. Sprinkling of the blood, I think, again, represents the sealing. Um, and, this, and this, at the end of time, is going rep- to happen on a, on, a, on a global scale. An entire people, not just an individual here or there like Enoch or, or Elijah, but the, the entire people of God on planet Earth will be settled into the truth that they cannot be moved. Uh, Monday's lesson, first sentence. It says, the primary function of the high priest was to mediate between God and humankind. This was that mediation question about heaven and mediation. Um, let me just give you, a, this is a quote, uh, gives you kind of a historic perspective of, of what some of the early pioneers in, in our church thought. This was written in 1881 in the Review and Herald, January 11. It says, while we rejoice that there are worlds that have never fallen, these worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages in the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of fallen man, and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. Mediatorial, mediation. Mm-hmm. You say mediation can mean a lot of things. What is mediator? What does a mediator do? In Goes in between. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. Why is it unapproachable? Unapproachable to just sinners or unapproachable to angels? Angels also. So why is it unapproachable? God is infinite. 
infinite. I know, and, and our finite minds have a hard time even conceiving the idea of infinity. But he's infinite. Can a finite being actually enter in a, into in, infinity? No. Any finite being, can you enter into infinity? It's not possible. It's beyond our ability. No matter how much we grow in our knowledge, our experience, our, our, our perspectives, our wisdom, God's still infinite, we're still finite. God lives in unapproachable light, not just photons, light, truth, knowledge, wisdom, love, joy. He lives in, un- he's infinite. It cannot, we cannot enter into infinity. And so if God wants unity with his creation, even his perfect creation, if he wants the closest intimacy po- possible, well then if we can't enter into, in- into infinity, what will infinity have to do? So there's always one member of the Godhead who's been the go-between, who's left infinity and manifested himself in the form of his creation to have close intimacy. And that member of the Godhead was the mediator, Jesus Christ. He is fully God, preexistent, but he leaves infinity to come into unity because of the love of God in their, in, in their heart. So yes, he's always been mediating, always been the go-between to bring us always ever lifting us in, in a perfect world and, and in a sinful world. Jesus has been working to take his creation and lift them ever closer in their intimacy with the Father. That does mean he's your work. Do uh, you want to say something, George? Just briefly, the neat thing is then he says he wants us to graft into him. So we, we have some connection. We can't fully absorb it. My sinful humanity grafts in. The angels aren't grafting in. Yes. And we're grafted in as sinful human beings, partaking of Jesus, the second Adam, who perfected humanity where Adam broke it off. We'll be closer to him now than if they'd never fallen. Yeah, yeah. Because he has partaken, actually become human. See, prior to humanity, we have scripture texts where, where Jesus manifested in the form of an angel. Uh, if you, one of those texts, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses speaks to God at the bush, and it says the angel of the Lord spoke to him, but then it says the, the, God spoke to him in the bush. So Jesus was manifesting in the form of an angel. He was not an angel. He could appear as an angel, but he was still God. But he actually became human. He partook of our humanity. So we have a closer relationship even now with God than the angels do. Okay. Third paragraph. This is out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 357. It says, The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. So in the tight... Type the blood of the, of the sin offering removed the sin from the penitent, but it rested in the sanctuary until the Day of Atonement. How do we understand this? The blood releases the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law. Why? What releases a tuberculosis patient from the condemnation of the laws of hygiene and health? What, what, they can be released from that condemnation, but what will it require to release them from that condemnation? Conformity with the laws of hygiene and health. Healing, curing, conformity. So think it through. The blood of Christ releases us from the condemnation of the law because what's it do to us? It transforms us. It heals us. It renews us. It rebuilds us. It recreates us. We have the law written on the heart and mind. We're, we're in harmony. We're not condemned because we're well. We're whole. We're restored. We're rejuvenated. You see, this is the healing model. The other model is, well, it pays the penalty. That's why Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's talking an application within. We actually receive a new heart. Blood applied to the heart. It's curing and restorative. Um, The life of Jesus doesn't cancel, however... When we, when we come to Christ, accept him as our Savior, have that new heart born within, regenerated within, that p- 
process doesn't erase history. The reality of his historical facts are still true. David murdered Uriah and stole Bathsheba. He got a new heart and right spirit. He was changed. He was cleansed. He wasn't a murderer in heart anymore. He wasn't an adulterer in heart anymore. He was loyal. He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He was well. He wasn't sick anymore. But Uriah was still dead. See, history didn't change. Historical facts don't change. They remain. What does that mean? The light, the blood doesn't change the history of these things. That's exactly right. And you, know, you understand our model is actually more consistent with this statement than the penal model because the penal model has this idea that history will get erased. That when you accept the blood of Jesus, it goes to your record book and it erases it on the day of atonement. It's going to be wiped out and there'll be no more record of sin in the eternity future. People won't know any of the mistakes you've made or the sins you've committed because they're covered by the blood of Christ. There's real problems with that. Jesus said those who are forgiven much love much. Mm-hmm. Think about if you have your, your, just imagine for a moment we wipe out your memory. You don't know anything about your past. You don't remember the time that you were dying of leukemia and somebody donated their bone marrow to save your life. You don't remember that. And then you meet them. But you don't remember it. How much appreciation do you have for them? You see, this idea of wiping out memory, we have very little appreciation for Christ and God. It's remembering what's happened. That's why we have a song of our experience that we sing, it says in Revelation. We sing about what he's done for us and delivered us. We have a testimony to give about how we've been transformed. Yes? Well, there would be no way we would know each other throughout eternity if we did not have that connected memory. We would walk up to each other and go, I mean, eternity would be so distorted. And not only that, there would be no protection from sin rising again. What protects sin rising again is that we've all been there, done that, seen it, understand it, understand the answers, have chosen freely to reject it and participate with God in his methods. There is no opening anymore for it to reinfect us. We're inoculated. But we won't be inoculated if we wipe out the memory antibodies that we have to this experience. Yes? What happens to Satan's accusations according to Zechariah 3? Yeah, Zechariah 3. That's okay. He's talking about the story where um, uh, the high priest is standing there and uh, the, the accuser starts accusing and, uh, and, I, and the high priest says, notice what he says. Take away his filthy garments. I have taken away your sin. Put on him clean clothes. Okay, what's actually happening? Is there a record being erased or is there a transformation happening? Okay, so here's what happens in the judgment. Satan will accuse. He's the accuser. He's going to start, David, David is a murderer and an adulterer. Jesus goes, okay, um, let me stop. Uh, David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse. Oh, here we are, David, son of Jesse. Uh, let me see. Um, no, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Satan, because we have no record. We could, I see my blood has been applied here, and it's, it's like magic eraser ink, and we have no idea what you're talking about in heaven. <laughs> That's what some people think happens. No. What Christ says basically is this. The historical facts you've recounted are true, but they're irrelevant. Because David has a right heart, new heart and a right spirit. He's been changed, the inner man. I'll give you a metaphor. Imagine you're being, you're, your name is being nominated for children's department head at your church. And as the nominating committee is discussing your, your, your name, somebody says, now, before you vote, you need to know, when so-and-so was five years old, they had a terrible viral gastroenteritis, it's an infection of your gut, and they had terrible vomiting and diarrhea and messed up their mother's new carpet and new couch and made a terrible mess. <laughs> you laugh. See, this is what happened. That people go, so why are you telling us? Well, because it was gross. It was disgusting. Okay, but... Are they sick now? No, they're actually quite healthy today. 
You see, it's irrelevant when you're well. When Satan brings that stuff up, it's symptoms of sickness of sin in the heart. That's what it is. And it was gross and it was disgusting. But that's not the question. The question is, have you partaken the remedy of Jesus Christ and been healed? So you're not like that anymore. The facts of what happened are symptomatic of the disease of sin in the hearts of intelligent beings without the remedy of Jesus Christ. But once we partake of Jesus Christ, transformation, regeneration, renewal happens, thus the facts become irrelevant. It's really the condition of the heart. Yes, Russell. To, to eliminate those facts would eliminate the, the, uh, the beauty of the transformation. I mean, to, to, have those, to have that record of healing, it, it, makes, it makes Christ's glory that much, that much greater. So let's go on a little bit more. Yeah, exactly right. Let's go on a little bit more with this quote. It stands on record in the sanctuary until the Day of Atonement. Meaning what? Well, what do we understand the sanctuary to be? There's a, somebody got a comment? I'm being pointed, yes. Say the example of Saul to Paul is powerful. Yeah, Saul, who was transformed into Paul. A transformational process, exactly. Um, he felt horrible that he was living that old way, but he wasn't the same person anymore. That's an excellent point. So, what do we understand the sanctuary to be symbolic of? Human heart and mind. Human hearts, minds, intelligent hearts, minds, um, corporate hearts, minds. It can be you. Don't you know that you yourself are a temple of God? Don't you know that you are the temple of God? So, intel- yeah. so what is it constructed out of this, this sanctuary? According to scripture, if you take scripture only and use your scripture to find the building blocks that the heavenly sanctuary is constructed out of, what is it constructed out of? Intelligent beings. You're, don't you know that ye are, uh, are living stones formed into a house of God? Don't you know that God's temple is built out of the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ is the full court and you are built into a house for God where he dwells? I mean, all through scripture you find this to be the case. Does God want to dwell in an inanimate building made out of dead materials? Where does he want to dwell? Did Satan, when he tried his rebellion in heaven, did he just want to get a grand cathedral with, made out of stone that he could sit in all alone? No, he wanted to enter the hearts and minds of intelligent beings to be the one most adored and loved. A living cathedral. The war. So the sanctuary is built out of intelligent beings. The war is 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We wage war over everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. It's a battle right here. The weapons of Satan are? Where do lies have their impact? In the mind. Okay. So what is being contaminated? What sanctuary is being contaminated by this war, Satan? The sanctuary of our character, our minds, our souls. We're being contaminated. So what needs cleansing? And then, coming down to this record business, who does Satan blame for all this problem? God. So after we're forgiven, after we experience a new motive, after we experience a new heart, what remains to be removed? The responsibility. Where did this all start? Why didn't God do something? Have you ever heard this question? I trust God, I see Jesus. But why didn't he stop it sooner? Why didn't he do something? Why did he create Lucifer in the first place? I mean, he has foreknowledge. Why did he do it? It's his fault. So what still remains, even though we're cleansed, we're run back to trust, we have a new heart and right spirit, there, these, these distortions still remain. 
And this responsibility is what's happening on the Day of Atonement. That blood is settling us into the truth that we can't be moved on the ark. And it's also the, the people who have been progressing with God applied to the golden altar. And the people who are just converted at the end also apply to the brazen altar. And then the hands are placed on the head of the, of the, of the scapegoat. We, however, having our minds that we're so settled, we're at one, our minds are united. No more questions remain. The record of the history of sin stands because God doesn't uh, erase history. But we have, have renewed hearts and minds. And throughout all eternity future, that record of history will remain in our minds and bring us joy as we appreciate what we've been delivered from. The uh, Tuesday's lesson, third paragraph, we're going to jump on the, 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 the goat here. It says, the, uh, the ritual of the live goat was the rite of elimination that, accom- that accomplished the final disposition of sin. Sin would be brought upon the one responsible for it in the first place and then carried away from the people forever. Atonement was made, atonement was made upon it in a punitive sense as the goat carried the ultimate responsibility for sin. You notice they gave a text, Leviticus 16.11, to, to reference this idea of punitive sense. I'm going to read to you Le- Le- Leviticus 16.11. They reference it, but they don't quote it. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Do you hear anything punitive there? The, the goat, after sin would put out, will be beaten with a stick until it dies. No. Did you hear any, any punishment being applied here? Isn't it interesting? Why do they read in punitive? Why do they read in punishment? The text doesn't actually say that. So how does the sending of the scapegoat, but it does say the scapegoat will be sent into the wilderness to make atonement. How does going into the wilderness make atonement? How does that work? What do we understand atonement to be? This is a a great problem for Adventism. Many other Christian groups really get on Adventists because they say that, 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 that we have Satan as the sin bearer. The sins were taken by Christ and then, and then the, into the sanctuary and then from, from our high priest, he takes them to the sanctuary and puts them on Satan and Satan carries the sins away. Satan is our sin bearer. And, and Adventists that have this penal model go through all kinds of, of very uncomfortable hoops to try to claim it's not so. No, no, he never bears our sin. He just bears responsibility for our sin. They claim that the scapegoat is a representation of Christ. They other Christian groups do. Other Christian groups have the scapegoat representing Christ who takes away our sin. And Adventists have the scapegoat representing Satan who carries away responsibility for our sin. But if it's responsibility, they also have him being punished. You see this quote here? Being punished for our sin. But this is a big problem because the penal model has already had Christ punished for our sin. Every sin, past, present, and future was placed upon Christ at the cross and punished in Christ. Isn't what the penal model teaches? But now they have the sins being placed on the scapegoat and punished. Again. This is what happens when you have a legal model. It's inconsistent and shows God to be arbitrary and, and irrational. Yes. solution for that too. They say Satan is made responsible for deceiving us into sin. And that's what he's punished for. That's in Anderson's book. Yeah, I know. And, I mean, uh, Andreas's book. But the healing model, the healing model, I think, can bring harmony to understanding all these things. Hey, Tim, one thing. Your yes. Description. I think it, this text, really, the window text, reveals that ultimately the scapegoat is set apart. And you know, if you're not at one moment with God, he is source of life. And if you don't want life, you do go to the wilderness. 
and these it might live for a while out there, but it's not going to survive for generations. It's going to die because it's, in, it's choosing solitary confinement. In the end, the sinners do choose death. They don't want life anymore. So George is bringing up a good point. The scapegoat was not executed. Right. The scapegoat was not killed. The scapegoat was let go to reap what happened when you're abandoned and let go by the source of life. It's a powerful demonstration, and it contradicts this idea that the, the, the goat is being punished or the wicked receive punishment inflicted by the hand of God. It's not consistent. But they have to bring this stuff in to, to hold to this model, which is, I'm going to tell you, Baal worship in the church. Yes. A thought I just had was maybe, maybe the scapegoat is symbolic of how once reality is made known and, and all the universe sees truth, the only thing left for Satan is to go into the wilderness without anybody else to talk to. And Be- beautifully said, Carla. Beautifully said. You see, um, the problem of sin is deviation from God's design, if that's the problem. And at the root are lies and selfishness. If that problem infects humans and results in humans operating deviant from God's design, therefore we're in a terminal state, the solution being the truth which displaces lies, restores trust, and receipt of Christ-like character renewed within, Okay, then we can understand how all these elements work. The blood represents the truth, which is being applied to the head of the goat. The truth. The truth about what? Placing the hands on the head of the scapegoat. Confessing sins on the head of the scapegoat. What is it saying? It's removal of the lies from the minds of intelligent beings. And putting those lies back, you're the liar. No, you lied. Uh Uh-uh, God is good, you lied. And that's what this symbolically says, is that this distortions that we've held about God in our minds that cause us distress and alienation and so forth are now removed. The truth about God is in our minds. The truth of who Satan is. We see him for what he is, as you're saying. I'm going to give you a Bible text that's going to point this out. We see... uh, the truth about God, but Jesus, the origin of sin, how sin infected us, the damage that sin has caused. We see the truth about Satan and his character. It, all the responsibility then is resting back in our minds. The minds of the intelligentsia of the universe have it clear finally and see Satan for who he really is. He's held accountable in the minds of the intelligent being, not God. God is fully vindicated. So going out in the wilderness then represents the going out of existence. Out of existence. He and his lies never again infect the people of God. That's a thousand years. More than that. The end of the thousand years, eternity. He and his lies never affect, infect the people of God again. So we see this described in Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 17. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? How have you been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pits. Now notice the next two verses. Those, those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home? We see him for who he is. He's exposed. That's what the scapegoat represents. The exposure. Remember, the two goats look almost identical. Almost identical. 
But in the end, the symbolic transfer of the blood and what's going on is we, of the people of God, are settled into the truth about God. We can't be shaken about it. And now when that happens, we can see the distinct and clear difference between God's ways, methods, characters, principles, and the, the imposter, the impersonator the liar, the fraud, and we see him, is this the man that caused so much trouble? And it becomes so obvious to us now. That's the scapegoat. And we talk to the hand, I'm not listening to you anymore. You're gone. And he's expelled from the minds of all the intelligences. So what does putting the hands represent on that coat? It represents the truth of the truth, remember the blood represents truth, the truth of all this coming to the minds of intelligence, Satan is held accountable. We realize the truth of who he is, realize the truth of the origin of sin, realize the truth of the origin of lies. They all originated here. You're the defect, you're the fault, you're the liar. You're the, Jesus said, you're the murderer from the beginning. You. That's what I think it represents. That's why he's gone from the people, never to reinfect us again. And in, in, uh, here's a, a quote um, out of Christ Object Lessons, page 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man by making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. What is the blood of the Lamb in this context? The truth. And you notice what it's doing. Is it condemning? Is it contaminating? What's it doing? Cleansing. Cleansing. Cleansing, transforming. Let's jump on. Let's jump on to Wednesday. Got a couple minutes for something I want to do in Wednesday's lesson. Mm. The feast days, really quick, I'm going to just tell you, the feast days, in my understanding, were they were an annual event that recurred to, to give you the progression of the origin of sin to the consummation and the closure of sin at the end. The plan of salvation acted out in the feast. So as soon as man sinned, the first feast was? What's the first feast in the annual progression? Passover. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God passed over the sin of Adam and Eve. He, in his grace, it says in, in Romans 3.25, he did not allow the full consequences come to bear. And immediately after Passover, immediately, that same evening, Passover and right now, unleavened bread. We partake of the unleavened bread. What's the unleavened bread represent? Righteousness. Christ, he passes over and is nurturing us already back to health. He's providing the truth that represented in Jesus Christ, the unloved bread, we have to partake of. And then, then after that comes the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks, which is basically the, the celebration of the harvest, which is, hey, he's passed over, he's presenting the truth into our hearts to nurture us back to health. We are to go out and share that, and we have a harvest. We have a harvest of souls coming in, and then... Next in the progression, after this spreading of the gospel, the harvest of souls, is the trumpets. The trumpets. If he's the trumpets, what's that represent? It's calling us. Prepare. Hey, wake up. It's like to wake up the, the people out of their sleep. Prepare. Some big, great major event is about to happen. And guess what that event is? The next feast. Atonement. Today, today we're going to be settled. We're going to be sealed. We're going to be healed. We're going to be cured. We're going to be back into one with God. And then what follows the atonement? The feast of tabernacles. We spend, after atonement, after we're reconciled, healed, restored, he comes again, we tabernacle for eternity, we're back in our Eden home. That's why they went out and built bowels and they lived in the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in those bowels, symbolic of being back in Eden. We're back home again. This is what the, the, the progression symbolizes each year. So, um, Day of Atonement, man, oh man. Uh, da- Daniel 8, 14, uh, 2300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. Just prior to Daniel 8.14, the Bible 
uh, points out that out of one of the horns that made up the division of Greece would come a little horn. Out of one of the horns that made up the division of Greece would come a little horn and would defile the sanctuary. How did this little horn defile the sanctuary in heaven after the fall of Greece? Greece has fallen, so it's sometime hundreds of years after, uh, uh, it happens after Christ. This horn comes up after Christ. How did this little horn contaminate the sanctuary in heaven? Well, here's a text that may give you some clues. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Whose names are written in heaven. Notice the church has its membership registered in heaven. Satan defiles the sanctuary by defiling the characters of the people who claim to be Christians. Our names are registered in heaven, and as we partake of satanic methods and God's and distortion to God's character, we are defiled, our hearts and minds, that's what, what's defiled in the heavenly sanctuary. And you can get this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. This is the same little power, little horn power, same power. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, did this little horn power, this was written after Christ's death and resurrection, did this, this, this man of sin that this talked about here, did he zoom up in a cloud into heaven, knock Jesus off his throne in heaven, sit down up there and proclaim himself to be God? Is that what happened? No, this is not that physical reality in heaven. This is the temple of the mind, the spirit temple. This power set himself up in people's minds to be worshipped instead of the truth about God. And the temple became contaminated and thus the temple where the spirit dwells needs to be cleansed of these lies. It's the same power. And I don't have time to go into it, but you come on November 9, and we'll take you through some more, some more history about how this power infected Christianity and the distortions about Christianity, and we'll cascade through the different views, and you'll see very, very clearly how the Christian church, regardless of denomination, it's not a denomination issue, has had these distortions about God alter how we see him and has infected us and we have failed but, uh, to take, take the gospel to the world. Let me give you a, closing, a couple of closing quotes. This is Malachi chapter 3, uh, starting in 1. To see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. Notice he's coming to his temple to cleanse something. And the scripture says he's going to cleanse the record books. No. No. He's going to cleanse the Levites. Those are the people, the priesthood of believers. He's cleansing our hearts and minds. That's what he's saying. And this is out of Maranatha for those who value what Ellen White said at the founding of our church. She said, The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi that I just read are descriptions of the same event. And Malachi makes it clear that event is the cleansing of the people on earth. We've got a lot of rethinking to do. 
It's a transformation. God is waiting for a people who, it says in, in 1 John, when he comes, we will see him face to face, for we shall be like him. He's waiting for a people who have been transformed to be like him so he can reveal himself and we can stand in his presence. He's wanting to cleanse us. But as long as we have removed it from earth, God is not working in our hearts and minds. He's not cleansing the spirit temple. He's up in heaven working in a secret room with lots of smoke, looking at record books, trying to erase record books and have decision what should be erased and what shouldn't be. We, we are not being cleansed. That's yeah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you long, you long in your heart for us to come home. Lord, we realize that there's a, there's a lot of distortions that have been taught through the years. We've been affected by those. We humble ourselves now. We know we're finite. You're infinite. We ask for your spirit to come enlighten our minds. Draw us back to, to your kingdom of love that we can understand your methods and principles. Give us the ability to share these truths effectively with others because, Lord, we really want you to come. But we know there's a work to do. There's people who have not heard this good news, people who, who are curable in spirit and mind and character who haven't yet partaken of the remedy you've provided. Uh, enable us to know how to present that remedy and And may may the doors of communication open that you may come soon. And Lord, we also had a a prayer request for Evelyn Lohman, who is is going to be going to some surgery this week. We ask that you will be with her and uh, be with the surgeons. May she come through this uh, without any difficulty. And I pray that you will guide the healthcare team, that uh, she will do well. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.